Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. Well, if you've been watching sports at all over the last 30, 40 years, you've probably heard this gentleman call some of the greatest moments in sporting history. Vern Lundquist joins us. Hi, Vern. How are you? Hi, Les. How are you doing? Doing great. Did I hear correctly that you and your wife almost got stranded on a cruise ship when the virus broke out? <laughs> That's quite true. Uh, we left Miami on, on uh, January 23rd. Uh, the intent was to go around South America, which is something we had never done. And uh, we were just absolutely fine uh, uh, until we were one day away from getting off the ship uh, to fly home from Lima, Peru. And the captain came on at 7 in the morning. He said, uh, bad news, Peru has closed its borders. Uh, We have been denied docking privileges, so we're going to head south back to Chile, where we had been, oh, I don't know, three or four days earlier. Uh, we were 12 hours into that, head, heading back south. Uh, he came on and said, well, we get even more bad news. They've closed, they've closed Chilean borders. Oh, my. So we're going to make another U-turn and head to the Panama Canal. And then you have to get in line. This uh, it took about three or four days to get there. Then you wait at anchor until they say, go ahead, and then a day through the canal, uh, and then three days to Miami. So all in all, we were exactly two months. But the blessing in all that is that we were in a controlled environment, and from the get-go, no one had reported anything concerning a coronavirus. So when we got to Miami, we were cleared really quickly and uh, immigration and customs let us through and we went to the airport and waited eight hours and uh, caught a flight to Denver. And Vern, you must have been heartbroken when the Masters was postponed because even though you retired in 2016, 2017, somewhere around there, you were still showing up at the Masters on the 16th hole, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was when. Uh, well, and it was it was an. Oh, oh, <laughs> uh, this was kind of an orderly almost retirement. Uh, Sean McManus, uh, chairman of the, of the uh, sports division, and not coincidentally, uh, Jim McKay's son, uh, and I had talked about 2016 and. Uh, and he he and I chatted in April that year, and then Sean said, "You know, uh, you've kind of established a, a link to Augusta, and uh, we'd like you to continue to work at the 16th hole." Wow! So I've uh, I've extended by two years, and that's it. My heavy lifting is accomplished in well, it used to be in April and May. Now it's going to be in November, apparently. Vernon, I was going to ask you, because you are 
woven into the fabric of, of the Masters. You just are. You were being modest when you assessed that. Your call of the Jack Nicholas shot and his victory in 86 was mesmerizing. But for many of the youth, many of the younger folks, they remember 2005 when you called Tiger Woods, and of course, that dramatic chip on 16. Uh, wow, in your life, have you any seen anything like it? And, and the words that were expressed as the ball hung on the lip. I have to ask you, as a broadcaster, broadcaster of the broadcaster, does that stuff come up on the fly, or do you have anything ready to go as you're calling a game or a sport? Uh, it's all instinct. Uh, I think for most of us, there there have been instances, and I'm not going to point any fingers, but <laughs> where guys have have, uh, have pre-thought the routine at the end of whatever it is and then jammed it in regardless. And to me, it sounds rehearsed. Uh, so in that case, I, I, I did have a, a guy in the aftermath of, of uh, Tiger's chip in. I went back to the compound, uh, to which our television compound at Augusta is probably a quarter of a mile away from the 11th fairway, down by the par three. And I went back, and, and Jen Sabatel and Leslie Ann Wade were then – uh, the two key people in our PR office, and they were manning their desks uh, inside Lance Barrow's office. And uh, Jen put me on with a writer. I don't remember from where, but he said, I just want to ask you, did you plan what you were going to say? And I was uh, shaking my head with incredulity. I thought, yeah, I couldn't sleep last night. So I thought, what if Tiger comes here with a one-shot lead and he hooks his tee shot way to the left and he's got 180 feet total, uh, most of it uh, straight, and then it's going to break off to the right and it'll hang on the lip for 1.8 seconds. I think I'll say in your life, have you ever seen anything like that? <laughs> eh, it doesn't quite work that no, way. No, never does. Hey, you know, you, you used the term earlier, heavy lifting. And and when I hear it coming from, you, from your mouth, Vern, I think about your back problems, heavy lifting, back problems, the whole deal. You spent almost your whole professional career fighting these back problems. You also had, um, I think you had both knees and, and a shoulder replaced as well, correct? Uh, my gosh. What what doctor have you been speaking <laughs> yeah, with? They told me everything about you. Right? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, there's not much left. I'm a real threat <laughs> in, in security lines at airports. Well, you know that this is called We Are Unstoppable, this podcast. So uh, what we want to know is uh, how did you remain unstoppable through all of those physical ailments? Uh, that is a fascinating question. And I'm going to share with you something. It's been two years ago now. Uh, but uh, in, in, in uh, well, 18, I had, a, I had a back surgery. I had uh, scoliosis and spinal stenosis both. And when he showed me the x-rays before, he said, we got to operate. My spine, the, the x-ray looked like an upside-down question mark. And so I went through surgery. And that year at Augusta, that was in November of 2017, uh, and there was concern among the the members at Augusta, the CBS staff, and quite frankly me, about my ability to climb uh, the the tower at 16 sits directly behind the green, 
and it's probably 18 to 20 feet high off the ground, and it's a, a steel, uh, an iron rung ladder, uh, so I have to have my briefcase hauled up by a rope, and then, I, I mean, pre-operation, uh, it's kind of frightening uh, every time to go up to go up that thing. And so uh, when we got to Augusta, uh, I was asked by a couple of members I know, are you concerned about slipping on your way up? And I, yeah, I am. And then Sean, Sean asked me the, the day before we started, uh, he said, I'm really worried about your ability to climb that ladder. And when you get to the top and the, the small platform, and there are only three of us up there, uh, the cameraman, a guy named Bob Wishney, who just retired, my stats guy, and me. And in order to get up and over, you got to put your 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 belly flat on the deck, and then kind of crawl over the edge. So anyway, I said, "Yeah, I'm I'm a little worried." And Sean said, "We got a solution. We do four different uh, Direct TV cable casts on the, uh, every day that we're there, and there, gosh, there's a the." the premier pairing uh one guy is assigned to do the 15th and 16th holes one guy does amen corner this is all uh, direct satellite tv uh, and they operate for the most part in a bunker in the compound up a hill and the on the range uh, telecast is anchored by bobby clampett and that goes off the air one hour before our coverage on CBS uh, proper begins. So they said, we've got one hour to convert the audio system and plug it in to uh, the main broadcast. And the technicians worked like crazy. And I did uh, all four rounds, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, sitting in a bunker. They gave me two monitors, uh, one of the actual on-the-air telecast and one that was focused on just the 16th hole. And so I, and, and they were able, and this was extraordinary in my mind, they were able to equal the sound coming out of that broadcast bunker to the sound of Jim and Nick and all the rest of the guys. And nobody uh, ever knew. Uh, and then last year I thought, well, I can do this. Uh, and then I had to have a, a, a second operation on my back back in October. Now I've got uh, I've got a reprieve. I've got <laughs> I've got from now to November all of a sudden to to worry about climbing that thing. And um, but I know there's a there's a, a plan B that has been used and will be used again if it has to. Vern, um, if Happy Gilmore oh dear. were to golf at the Masters. What would he score? And I'm assuming when you shot the movie and you came up with that famous line, you also saw Adam Sandler swing the golf club. So I'm wondering what Adam Sandler would score if he had a round at the Masters. Well, I know this. He would drive several of the par fours. (laughs) Uh, You know, we shot that in 96. And who knew? Uh, Honest to God, I shot all of my scenes uh, in one day in uh, at uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, and I was like the second to last day of the completion of the film, and uh, 
I, I met with Adam Sandler, and the director of the movie was a guy who played the commissioner in that thing. And, and uh, it came and went in theaters and didn't make much of a dent. But then USA Television picked up the rights and they replay it now. It seems to me like at least once every other week. I just saw it yesterday, Vern. It was on yesterday, and all I could think oh, of, on. I swear, and my son and I watched it, and I and, and we were sitting there, and, and all I could think about is, I wonder what kind of royalty checks Vern Lundquist gets out of this movie. Not much. <laughs> Not much. I'm I'm smiling inside because this is absolutely I, – I probably get one every quarter – uh, and uh, Universal Studios, they, they are meticulous. And my average, uh, my average income from that is uh, $34.15 every quarter. <laughs> now, I've, I've got to tell you that I did two other movies that are in the dustbin of history. Uh, in 82, I had uh, about a two-minute piece in the best little whorehouse of Texas, which starred uh, uh, Burt Reynolds and, and uh, Dolly Parton. I never met them. Uh, in in 1991, I did probably five minutes at the opening of a buddy movie with uh, Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans called The Last Boy Scout. And uh, I get residuals from them. And I got one. I can't believe Happy Gilmore was on again. But some, some, somewhere in the world, one of those three movies is being rebroadcast in cable. And I got one. I, I, I can't remember the name of the country, but it was like Bangladesh for The Last Boy Scout. And it was $1.17. <laughs> do you cash them? What do you do with those checks? No, no, we, no, we don't. We don't cash them. We, we, we want to screw up the accounting system <laughs> at the studio. So we let them pile up. Yeah, it costs them more to send out the, the uh, mail oh, to you. Yeah. Can I, you imagine to process that check? I, I have a similar story, Vern. I, I did a, a movie with Kevin Costner. Not that I was co-starring in it. He was he was the lead in the movie. I did have a few speaking lines. It was called Swing Vote. And about once a quarter from Disney, I get a check for $2.34. There you are. Yeah. All right, Vern, last thing from me. You've done so many different sports. Uh, you've done bowling. You did bowling in Dallas, for God's sakes. I did indeed, and I'll hate you for bringing it up. <laughs> You did uh, you did ice skating. I, I don't think a lot of people uh, might remember that, but when you were with CBS uh, in three different Winter Olympics in, I think it was 92, 94, 98, you did ice skating with, with uh, a, a guy that uh, Vic and I both know, Scott Hamilton, who spent some time in Denver. Sure. Uh, but you, you did the Nancy Kerrigan-Tanya Harding competition in 1994, and a couple of years ago, a, a great movie came out. I thought it was the movie of the year, I, Tanya. How accurate was the portrayal in that movie about what went on in the 94 Olympics? Uh, not, not accurate the way I remember it. Uh, and, and I, I, I say that because I thought, uh, now Tanya Harding had a horrible childhood. Uh, she really, 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 her mother was married, I think six times. And when when the ninety five, what I vividly remember is the ninety four Olympics. 
uh, and and the night that they had the short skate, the two minute thing on Wednesday night, and the long skate on Friday, and Tanya's boot lace broke, and uh, Scotty Hamilton, who I, is just one of the best people in the world, uh, and and Scott said, I think she's got one minute to get out of it. I think you're going to disqualify her. We took a shot. Her, her mother was nowhere to be seen. And Alice and Janney played the mom in the movie. Uh, I thought it tilted a little more favorably to the Tanya Harding I knew than what our experience was. But now, having said that, uh, I also think that we at CBS, and this is all of us, were declined to, to designate these two women, Tanya and Nancy, uh, as the beautiful princess and the dark, evil lady from Portland, Oregon. And I think we were culpable of that. And in truth, uh, Nancy Kerrigan was a, was a I don't want to say lower middle class, because that it has negative connotations, but you, you would probably call Tanya Harding lower middle class. But uh, Nancy Kerrigan grew up on the Cape uh, in Massachusetts. Her dad was a plumber. Uh, her mom was legally blind, and in return for access to Nancy, uh, we had Brenda Kerrigan and and her dad, uh, Daniel. They had they sat behind Scott and me in the booth uh, at the ice skating rink in in Norway, uh, and Brenda uh, was given a hooded television set. She could barely perceive figures, but there was kind of an unwritten quid pro quo that uh, they were would intercede with Nancy and give us access, which Nancy very, very hesitatingly gave to even Scott. Uh, she was uh, arms off, arms length in a way that Tanya was as well, but that's not the way it came across on television. And I think we were culpable in in that decision to to play uh, some kind of a cartoon of dark versus light. Well, that that was reality television before it came into the front. I have to ask you then, in this spirit of Unstoppable, which is what this podcast is all about, Vern, what athlete? And and this might be a tough one in in your history of calling sports. What what athlete, when it comes to being unstoppable? has really defined that to you? Oh, wow. Uh, the, the, the greatest athlete I've ever seen uh, in the modern times, and that would be the last 40 years, uh, was Bo Jackson. Uh, I mean, think about what he did in football and, and, and uh, baseball and then had the hip dislocation. Yeah. Uh, and it, uh, I'm shocked at this. He's in neither the football hall of fame or the baseball hall of fame. Wow. And he, and I, I remember we, I, I'm involved in the Doak Walker awards, uh, every year in Dallas, which goes to the outstanding running back uh, of the year. Uh, and, and, uh, we do a legends award every year in the, at the banquet in Dallas in February. Uh, and, and Bo was the legendary winner. Uh, oh, I guess about six, seven years ago. 
and Herschel has won it. Uh, Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside, Roger Staubach and Pete Dawkins convinced Doc Blanchard and, and uh, Glenn Davis to show up at the banquet. So it's a distinguished list. And in, in interviewing Bo, uh, I mentioned something about he had been formed, uh, he had been timed in the 40 yard dash at 4.29. And he held up his hand at me and he said, 4.19. Wow. I mean, uh, if he says it, I'm going to believe it. But uh, that is staggering. And uh, I, do you remember the run when he was with the Raiders? And he charged it, went around the left side and went 85 oh, yards yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and went right into the tunnel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he and, – and I find him a very congenial man in the spirit of a Doak Walker who was my boyhood idol. Uh, and so I, – and, and I, I think – I don't know about overcoming obstacles because the obstacle came later in his life. But uh, he, he'd be in my short list. Vern, the man had hip replacement surgery, put on a major league uniform, and in his first at bat after hip replacement surgery, he hit a home run. His first at bat. Yes. Unbelievable. No, it really is. Vern, we've talked about a lot of unstoppable athletes. Um, you were unstoppable in the broadcast booth for so many years, and we really appreciate you joining the show. Well, it's been great to reminisce with both of you. Bless you, Vern. You're the best. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Jason Stoneback from the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You know, Les, when I got hit with prostate cancer, it's the first place I turned to because I know the Anschutz Campus they really delve into breakthrough technology. If there's something new on the horizon, I know they've got it. And I was hit with lung cancer, and that's where I get treated as well, at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. They've got me up and running. They've made me unstoppable. Less they've made us unstoppable, and they're located right here in the heart of the Rocky Mountain region. We're joined by Dr. Jason Stoneback. He is on the faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and he serves in three roles. He is the chief of the Orthopedic Trauma and Fracture Surgery Service. He is the director of the Limb Restoration Program, and he is the vice chair of clinical affairs. Welcome, Dr. Stoneback. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Sure. So you are at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, but it's not just you. you you've assembled a dream team of doctors, from what I understand, doctors and specialists who will do whatever it takes to save a person's limb after a trauma. Tell me about your team. Well, I'm privileged to direct this real specialized team called the Limb Restoration Program. And it's at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And it's a team of just top performers in every aspect in their individual fields. So myself being the primary limb reconstruction surgeon, and then we have people in every aspect uh, that, that touches patients that may have extremities at risk. First of all, let me back up and tell you what this team, what types of patients we take care of. So we take care of people really with extremities at risk. Often that is patients who've had multiple surgeries, trying to get bones to heal or have lost significant pieces of bone 
or really just have complicated problems that they haven't had success with previously. So our team consists of myself, multiple advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners, nurse navigators that help these patients navigate these limb-threatening problems, plastic and reconstructive surgeons, amputee physician specialists, wound care specialists, nutritional experts, specialized radiologists that are deal with only the musculoskeletal system, and many, many more. So it's really a, a high-functioning, specialized team that deals with patients with really complicated problems. So you must see a lot of trauma and injury from professional athletes, I'm guessing. Have you had a lot of athletes as your patients? A lot of athletes. So athletes can have severe injuries from the high-impact sports that they they play. Um, and also they get in, involved in car wrecks and things like that that can leave them with really debilitating problems. So we, we frequently address those, those sorts of injuries in those types of high-performing athletes. Well, what was the most difficult case you had with an athlete? And I'm asking you about athletes because on the We Are Unstoppable podcast, we are interviewing quite a few athletes who have gone through um, traumatic situations, whether they be physical or mental. So what was the most difficult case you had? One of the most difficult cases that I've encountered in a young professional athlete was a young bull rider, actually multi-sport rodeo athlete. And he was involved in, had several injuries that I've treated over the years, but one of the most challenging one was where he broke his leg and developed an infection. He had surgery at another uh, facility, ultimately developed a severe infection and had problems with the bone healing uh, because of infection. Given that he is a uh, high-level rodeo athlete, getting that him back to doing what he's passionate about, there's scholarships on the line, those sorts of things, as well as his professional career, ultimately. We had to take all of that hardware out, clean out this deep-seated infection, and then use this circular ring fixator uh, that I was briefly describing previously where the entire apparatus that was stabilizing the bone was on the outside of the leg. And when you have severe infections in limbs, sometimes we can't get the skin closed and we have to move tissue, either skin and, and, and fascia or muscle from other parts of the body with the blood vessels attached and take that and then put it somewhere else on the body to cover these large wounds. We wanted to prevent that in this athlete because of he was a, has the desire to be a professional bull rider and is one. So what we did was use this innovative technique where we actually twisted the leg a little bit um, in, in not the normal way he would be aligned to allow the skin to heal without one of these big cosmetic procedures to get the skin to heal. And then ultimately reposition the leg utilizing this device and a three-dimensional computer program to allow them to heal infection-free. And then when we remove that device, there's no metal plate screws or rods inside his bone. He's healed infection-free and, and competing at a very high level. Right, crazy what you're able to do these days. So, so it sounds to me like your goal is to return patients, whether they be athletes or not, to their optimal self. 
so so what does that mean? I mean, after a loss or a, a partial loss of a limb or an infection like you're describing, they kind of have to become somebody else physically and mentally. So how do you and your team help them? It's a passion of ours, really. When you look at programs like ours, and there are very few in the world uh, that are, are uh, at the level of the number of people and experts that we have on our team, it's about, it, they're, they're frequently called limb salvage services. And, and I really don't like that term because it implies that we have someone with a bad problem with their limb and it's like a garbage can on the bottom of the ocean that has barnacles and dents in it. And we're going to take it out and kind of knock the barnacles off and knock the dents out. And that's your new leg and you should be happy with it. The reason I call it the limb restoration program is it's about restoring a patient's form and function. And it's about getting them to their optimal self. So that may be getting a person back to competitive professional athletics, uh, making a bone heal that didn't want to heal or getting rid of an infection that's been really stubborn and they can't get rid of in an extremity. But it's also about helping people who may be faced with these really debilitating limb extremity injuries decide if and when an amputation is right for them. And we don't think that's a failure. It may be the right decision for the right person at the right time. And that, that ultimately allows them to be their optimal self. We also deal with a lot of amputees who are having problems with traditional socket prosthetics. And that is a real challenging problem for some amputees. So some of the problems these patients who are amputees can have are wounds from the sockets uh, rubbing on their skin and in their groin if they're an above knee amputee. They can have wound breakdown, constant pain. Imagine sitting like we are here talking today with a big plastic socket that's over your leg. It causes you to sit sort of cocked to the side because you have to sit on this socket and that can be very uncomfortable. Patients will describe you know, I, I have a desk job and you think, well, you're an amputee and you have a desk job. That's good. Right. But it's very uncomfortable to sit. And they often will talk about printing five jobs to the printer before they get up to get those jobs. So we do a, an extremely innovative technique called osseo integration for some of these patients. And it's where we take a metal rod and we actually insert it or a metal implant and we insert it into their amputated extremity, into the bone, and the bone osseo-integrates or integrates into that metal implant, and then the metal implant is permanently sticking outside of the skin, through the skin, and then they can easily clip on and clip off their prosthetic limb, and it gets rid of these sockets that cause so many problems and, and limit their functional capabilities. I understand you're also able to grow bone. How in the world do you do that? We do grow bone. And the way we grow bone is through a process called distraction osteogenesis. So the way that is done is by cutting the bone in a, in a very specific manner. So it's a surgical cut of the bone. It's not quite like a fracture where you break your leg and it's not like sawing the bone or uh, when you get a hip replacement, it's, we preserve the outer covering of the bone called the periosteum, which has the blood supply. It's like the skin of the bone on the inside of your limb. 
and we try to preserve the blood flow that's inside an intramedullary canal in a very controlled fashion. So we make this controlled break and then we use some sort of device, whether it be these magnetic nails that we were, I was speaking about or these external fixators or other things. We then can program specific to the patient's age and what has happened to their bone. And we can move that bone at about a millimeter per day. And so the way, the best way to describe distraction osteogenesis is doing that specialized surgical cut and then leaving the bone there for a short period of time, like seven to 10 days. And the bone thinks, well, I've been broken. I need to heal myself, right? So it begins to try to heal. And then just as it begins to try to heal, we move it apart just a, about like a, a millimeter a day. And then it keeps trying to fill that gap and grow. And we can, you know, make that bone healing gap spread really a long way, 10, 14 centimeters. So quite some distance. So that's how we do that. So in order to get folks back to their optimal self, as we talked before, they, they obviously have to have some tremendous intestinal fortitude, both physically and mentally. Uh, but I'm also guessing that certainly after what you've been describing, what your team does, they must feel unstoppable to you, you and your team. I mean, it sounds like you're not going to stop until you find a way to fix people, whether it's uh, conventional techniques that, that are that are well known to the medical world, or it's something that, that you and your team can can come up with innovations and, and breakthrough techniques, as we spoke before. Is, is that a good way to characterize you and your team? Unstoppable? Yes, sir. Absolutely. It takes a special type of character uh, in a provider that works with our team. And they all have that unstoppable attitude. No problem is too big. No problem is too small. Uh, and we have to have every type of tool in the toolbox from the most typical way to deal with things to really thinking outside of the box and saying, okay, this is a problem. No one else has been able to fix. How's our team going to fix this? And it really is that unstoppable attitude that helps our team accomplish some of these things that people just don't think is possible. Well, Dr. Stonebeck, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more Unstoppable stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today.